Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavi Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. This week we watched the 2018 psychological drama Burning, directed by Lee Chang-dong, who co-wrote the screenplay with Oh Jung-mi, adapting a short story by Haruki Murakami. Yuan stars as a young working-class man who becomes embroiled in an enigmatic relationship with his childhood friend Hae-mi, played by Jeon Jong-seo, and her wealthy new acquaintance Ben, played by Stephen Yeun. So Burning earned near-universal praise from critics at the time. It was listed by a lot of people as one of the best films of 2018. I hadn't seen this movie before, so I was really curious to watch it. So thank you very much to our Patreon follower, Thomas, for requesting this. Morgan had seen this before and uh, did not really share the same kind of opinion that most critics had. And unfortunately, Thomas, I'm sorry to say <laughs> I was not wild about this film either. You know, it's not like this is going to be a pan. There's a lot of interesting stuff to say about this film and the actors are fantastic and there's many qualities I appreciated. But this is going to be kind of a rare episode where both of us are kind of separated from the critical establishment in our negative opinion of this widely beloved movie. Yeah, um, I was really curious to watch this again because I... So I saw this at the New York Film Festival because it must have played Cannes or something. Yeah, it played Cannes. It, it was a big deal at Cannes. Because I bought a ticket for it, not knowing... This is the only Lee Chang Dong movie I've seen. I would like to see some of his other films. But... I bought the ticket based on it having this reputation already by the time it got to NIF as like one of the big movies of the year, this big international hit on a critical level. And I went with a friend of mine and this is two and a half hours long, this movie. It's it's very long. And I just remember sitting there being like, this is so long and really not liking it. And she didn't either. And feeling that sense of just like, I didn't get it, Right. And also being confident in my opinion, as I always am, that, like, I had problems with it. But that sense of, like, clearly there was something here that, like, wasn't clicking. And I watched it again and I just hate it so much. I do think that there's stuff to praise about the movie and things I admire about it. And I think some of the things I really dislike about it are more subjective. So like, there are things I don't like where I can be like, well, that's just my taste that's like not meshing with the movie. And so I could see why another critic would be like, oh, this is really working for me. But there are some things, namely the sexism, which we will dissect in detail, that like I think is really troubling. And the fact that this movie was so completely overwhelmingly adored despite this glaring problem at its center, is perturbing to me. Yeah, I was really curious to read interviews and reviews and stuff after I'd watched the movie. We looked into various interviews with the director and kind of criticism at the time, positive criticism, obviously. So we do kind of have some perspectives from people who really loved this film. But even kind of reading a lot of this stuff, one of the things that really stood out to me is one of the main appeals and narrative themes of this film is obviously the total ambiguity of the story and the perspectives. And there was a lot of stuff in interviews with Lee Chang Dong where he kind of talks about the importance of ambiguity in storytelling and how, especially in modern mainstream cinema, there's this real rejection of ambiguity, which is something I think Morgan and I are also both really invested in. <laughs> but even then, even though I'm like, I completely agree with you, this film still kind of wasn't clicking for me. Um, so just to give a bit more detail on the premise of the film, this main character, who's played by Yoo In, who is a very famous South Korean actor, 
he's a loner. He's recently graduated university and he's an aspiring novelist, but he kind of doesn't really have any ideas. He basically just doesn't know what to do with his life. And he lives on his family farm by himself because his father has been arrested for a petty crime. And the inciting incident of this film is when he is in the city and he bumps into this young woman who used to be his neighbour as a child. And she's this hot girl who has this clearly quite shit job, basically like dancing around outside, advertising stuff, being a hot girl. (laughs) And she seduces him very rapidly and has him come round to her bedsit apartment where they sleep together. And she asks him to take care of her cat while she goes on holiday to Africa. And there's definitely sort of an implication here that maybe part of the reason she slept with him at all is because she needed someone to cat sit. And there's also part of it is like, well, she used to be ugly as a child or she remembers him thinking she was ugly, but now she's had plastic surgery. So she wants to prove to him that she's hot. So right from the get-go, we've got these really ambiguous perspectives from the main characters. And then when she comes back, from this holiday. She returns with the character played by Stephen Yun, who is this very confident and suave, rich guy who's just completely put together and is the opposite of the protagonist. And it turns into this sort of love triangle. Although the main character is very passive, like he's not competing for the girl's affections. It's more like he's just observing this girl being taken from him. And also there's this really obvious narrative contrast between the classes in the film because the main guy and the girl Amy are both clearly working class they're struggling they don't really have careers yet if ever and then there's this guy who like his whole life is clearly really easy it's not really clear whether he's working at all he does say at one point that what he does is just play so either he's inherited a bunch of money as the implication is or he's done some kind of stock market bullshit Or maybe he's a criminal. He is a very enigmatic character and you definitely get psychopath vibes from him pretty early on. So that's kind of an interesting interplay between those three characters that get set up in the first like hour of the film. Yeah, I mean, part of my problem with this movie is that the characters don't really behave like normal human people. (laughs) The biggest problem is with Haimi, the, the female character, who just... At no point in this movie does she remotely behave like any human woman I have ever encountered in my life. But the male characters also kind of don't. And I was talking to um, a friend of mine who had seen this movie at the time yesterday because I remembered, like, not a ton of my friends saw this movie because it's a two and a half hour art film. But I remembered the people who had seen it not being super into it, which was it contrast with the critical reception. And so I was kind of asking people yesterday, like, you saw Burning, right? Like, did you like it? And the people who had seen it were sort of like more mixed than us, I think, but were definitely not super positive. And um, this friend, one of the things she said without me prompting was like, the characters didn't really act like normal people. And I was like, right, because they just like, what the fuck? And I think this is partly a subjective thing, but I think I think it's partly a problem with the movie in that the film is kind of stranded between two genres for me in that part of what works about it, I think, is that it is really interested in this class problem in South Korea, right? Which so much of South Korean media that has been exported to the United States has been interrogating in the past few years, which is this like extreme wealth gap. 
And I think the comparison to Parasite is facile in a way, like it's so obvious. But they're also like both movies that are dealing with that subject that are kind of thrillers. But I think Parasite really knows it's a thriller and is playing with both genre tropes and like genre filmmaking in a way that's incredibly adept and aware. So like that movie knows what it is. And to me, Burning is like partly really naturalistic. And I think like the production design is incredible. So like this guy's house out in the country and like it's right by the by the border with North Korea. So you really get this sense of like yeah. this place has kind of been abandoned. Like the people there really don't have any money and like all of that stuff. It feels really real and all of the sort of crowded yeah. urban scenes and just the places where they're eating and the way people's houses are arranged. Right. So like all of that, like that attention is really interesting. And this is not a movie that's made by someone who doesn't know how to make a movie, right? Like part of my frustration with it, I think I was saying this to you before we started recording, is that like Lee Chang Dong obviously is an incredibly skilled director. It's not like this is someone who's just like, eh, I don't know. Like <laughs> There's a lot about the film that's really masterful. But then it also is trying to be a thriller. And in order for that to work, it has to sort of break conventions of naturalism. And then the characters start doing things where you're just like, no one would do this. Like, that's not how humans behave <laughs> at all. And like, it doesn't, to me, make sense or track emotionally. And then I get pulled out. Well, the thriller question is an interesting one, right? Because with a film like this, you can't really pin it down. Like, obviously it's not a commercial thriller, it's always interesting to see what the Wikipedia consensus is when there's something that's a bit of a cross-genre movie. And according to Wikipedia, this film is a psychological thriller. I would say maybe 20 minutes of this film are a thriller and the rest of it is more just a drama. And it's also adapted from a short story, which is decidedly not a thriller. It's a literary fiction piece that has mystery elements and is far less threatening in tone than this is. And... Also interesting in the context of just a couple of weeks ago, we were discussing Drive My Car, which is another long movie drama that's adapted from a Haruki Murakami short story. And one thing that those films both have in common is they have a lot of these long conversations that people have about their sort of worldviews and things, which to me is usually a, a staple of a type of film that I really don't like very much that just doesn't kind of gel with me in terms of my personality. There's a lot of independent dramas that do have these long philosophical discussions that to me ring hollow or feel feel pretentious in some way. And I know a lot of people really like that type of film. It's basically just a matter of taste. But with Drive My Car, I was like, this film's incredible. It's got loads of really interesting things to say about the artistic process. This just comes across as conversations between really intellectual people. Whereas I'm watching this film and I'm like, the, the way these conversations are being introduced in the script kind of rings hollow and feels awkward and just wasn't clicking, you know? But just to kind of talk about the short story, Morgan and I both did read that kind of after watching the movie because we were like, wonder what the original's like. So yeah, it's definitely a different vibe. The protagonist of the short story is an older man. So he's like in his early 30s. And he meets the girl who's 20 and he is already married at the time. So like that's a completely different premise already. And although it does introduce this Ben character, as in the Stephen Yeun character, it's a much less sort of threatening and unequal relationship because there's not really that element of like the economic inequality. And 
it's basically all about the title of the short story, which is Barn Burning, because they have this pivotal conversation where Ben admits that he is a pyromaniac. Like he likes to set, in the case of the movie, plastic greenhouses on fire. And in the movie, that's a lot more kind of ominous and threatening. And in the short story, that's more of just like a mystery. And it seems like what happened is Lee Chang Dong kind of read this story and was like, this is a really interesting concept. I've thought of a way to spin this out into a much longer movie that's got much deeper characters and is kind of about the human condition and also has this really obvious thriller element. It is quite different. I mean, I think you can get to the same sort of place at the end with the Ben character, though the plot in the movie yeah. takes a lot more turns. The thing about Murakami, like I saw Drive My Car was having conversations with people and I was like, well, you can totally see where like where the Murakami stuff starts, but like, it's not, it's not really happening. I've never fucking read any Kuroki Murakami until I read this short story. It's like being a, you know, English major who discusses Ulysses at parties in a really knowing way and hasn't ever read Ulysses, I say as someone who has definitely been that person. So I've never really read him, but he's obviously a huge, like, major figure in world literature, and every single year they're like, is he gonna win the Nobel? And then he never does, because it's not gonna happen. But the thing that, like, I know about him, and that if you've sort of absorbed current conversation about his work, is that um, he's very, very sexist, and that he writes these stories and novels where women kind of serve as functions for male characters to sort of discover things about the world or themselves uh, specifically through sex and um there was uh, a few years ago this younger japanese novelist female japanese novelist named mieko kawakami whom he had like showered praise upon they appeared on stage like sort of doing a talk together and she was interviewing him and like she asked him about this which i think is incredible because he's like the most famous and acclaimed writer in Japan and she's obviously much less powerful so i that was enough for me to like immediately order her book reading this interview and she was like very respectful about it but like wanted him to answer these questions that she had about these characters and he was clearly quite taken aback which makes sense because i'm sure that no one ever asks him about this right and it is really interesting to me in the context of the film that it's sort of a mirror, right? That like, this is this author who, again, like this is definitely part of how he's talked about is the problem with women, but for so long was just like this legendary author. And like, I'm sure that his very celebrated books have many great things about them. I haven't read them. And it's clear from this interview that he wasn't like trying to be like a gross sexist. Like he was quite shocked by by these questions and having to think about them. But like, that doesn't mean that what you've written isn't gross and sexist, right? And this movie too seems to me to be like, there's just no sense that there's a problem. And the reception too was just like not aware, but it's a problem. I mean, there was definitely some criticism of that. If you read a few reviews, there was some criticism of the female character, but I was definitely intrigued to see the different ways that the director kind of described the lead actors in the casting process. So just to give a bit of background on Lee Chang Dong, obviously like one of South Korea's top filmmakers, he started out as a school teacher and then a novelist and then became a screenwriter and very quickly began to work as a director. He also was Korea's Minister for Culture in 2003 to 2004. And then he was blacklisted by the conservative government in the mid 2000s, along with about 9,000 other artists. 
including Park Chan-wook, which I assume is why he ended up coming to the US and making Stoker would be my guess. I'm sure that's true. I had no idea any of this happened. Unbelievable. Yeah, well, the president got impeached and flung in jail in 2017. So... But yeah, this is kind of his comeback movie, essentially. You know, he's a he's a 67-year-old director, so like he's been around for a while. And I found a couple of great interviews with him. There's one at Little White Lies, and there's one that the Hollywood reporter that I will link to in the show notes. So in terms of like what he says about the other actors, obviously Stephen Yun to our primarily Western audience will be the most familiar face, and uh, he's got a lot of really interesting stuff to say about that because he did a million promo interviews for that in the US. And Yuan's um, interviews are kind of inaccessible unless you go to a lot of uh, Korean fan sites. But in terms of how they're discussing the female lead, Joan Joon Seo, who played Hemi, this was her first movie. In fact, it was her first ever audition, which is nuts. And Lee Chang Dong kind of describes her as pure and also kind of compares her to a schoolgirl. In this interview with Little White Lies, he's like, I was thinking she had this pure quality, but also a double side to her personality that I thought I, I could use. She came across like a pure schoolgirl, almost like a blank canvas. And I was wondering, is that all she's got? It looks like there's something underneath, which just is a very different way of like talking about an actor than the two male actors. And obviously there is like an element of that that comes through in a lot of like newcomer performances and children's performances. It's often like a really important part of their performance. And since this movie came out. This actress's career has gone great. She starred in this uh, thriller in Korea, which was just got rave reviews and people were like, she's amazing. She plays like a huge mean bitch in it, which is great. But to me, there is certainly an echo of, <laughs> of sexism in the double standards between these two sets of actors, you know, because obviously the lead, he is known for giving these like really big, strong, extreme performances and a lot of stuff. And then this is like a big artistic challenge for him because he's playing a more sort of passive and self-contained character. And he's a great actor and he's great in it. But it's one of these things where it almost positions the experienced man as someone who's doing this really like technical and impressive performance. And the girl's appeal is that she's like this innocent sort of empty little puppet thing. And I'm sure that is also just like partly the wording of this interview, which is just one interview, but I kind of saw similar language and other stuff he was talking about. And I was just like, it kind of just echoes like the way that character comes across. And I know a lot of other people have differing opinions to that, but it's like, mm. yeah, no, I find that not great. And it's, fascinating so like when i first saw this i didn't know who any of these actors were except for steven yun obviously and it's was so fascinating to me to watch it a second time knowing that you in who plays the lead is this like mega star because when i was watching it with just like no awareness he is absolutely incredible as this sort of like hapless guy almost seems a little stupid which again is like, the character doesn't totally make sense in the whole movie, and I think that in the second half, the writing really doesn't help him because he starts to behave again in ways where you're just like, what are you doing? Like, what what the fuck? Like, I don't really get this. In the first half, though, before the sort of thriller elements really pick up, I still don't, like, love the movie at that point, but in terms of that character, I think, like, he's way more consistent to me and interesting in that part of the movie. You see more of his like the sort of fringes of his life in like a mundane way. And I think some of those scenes are actually really interesting. His yeah, father has been arrested and is on trial for this petty crime. And we we find out that his dad 
was like extremely violent when he was a child and then that's why his mother left and um he has a meeting with his dad's lawyer who's basically asking him to try to help do something like do anything to help with this case and he's asking what he studied he's like oh you went to college and like what did you study and he says like creative writing and this sort of shame-faced way where i was like oh i I can relate to this and the the lawyer is clearly (laughs) a little bit like interesting but instead of doing the completely cliche thing of being like what a useless degree he's kind of like tries to be kind of encouraging and it's like oh what are you gonna Right, and something about that scene just struck me as, like, so perfect, because it both does feel really familiar, but isn't exactly what I was expecting, and that actor who just has this small part in the film, who plays the lawyer, was great, and there are a couple little scenes where the main character is alone, and is kind of just talking to himself, or, like, talking to the cat in her apartment who, like, won't come out, and... He's just kind of, like, being really silly and messing around in a way that I found very charming and humanizing. Like, he seems really young in those scenes. And there's very little in the movie that's funny, but those moments are very funny and add a kind of lightness to it that I wanted more of. And so, again, you get these little moments with him that I found really appealing and there's just something about his whole physicality like he just kind of is like slumping around and like walking really awkwardly in a way that's clearly yeah he's kind of slouching around and he's like really dopey and And it's clearly (laughs) not the way that he walks normally even as someone watching it the second time not even that i was thinking of like his other roles but i was just paying more attention to the performance and i was like you clearly don't walk that way normally but it doesn't feel put on i mean the last role i saw him in he was like an intensely scary cult leader and in real life he's like a model and at one point he was like the fashion editor of a magazine and he's also a published poet it's just so he's he's very accomplished it's (laughs) mind-boggling to me and i think a lot of the attention for the film especially in America was on Steven Young, which makes sense because he's an American actor. And he also is, he's great in the movie and gets the flashy part because he's playing this like scary, sexy man. Right. Yeah. And I, I do think he's fantastic, but I was more interested in the lead this time because I think he kind of has a harder part in a way. Cause he's not playing the like sexy, dangerous guy. Right? Like he's playing the show. And also, in order to kind of retain the audience's interest, this is a long movie where he is in almost every single scene. And it's a film where honestly not very much happens. (laughs) So that has to be a really compelling screen presence where it's like about, you know, an hour and a half of this movie is just like a man eating food or (laughs) or like feeding the cat or wandering around and doing chores. I think he he is so good that he he really helps with that. But I, especially that I like had control over the pause button this time. I was like, oh, this is a problem because it it took me a while to get through the movie. And I think if we talk a little bit more about the the technical side, it was interesting for me to think about what was and wasn't working about the movie because, as I was saying when we started talking, on one level, this is clearly a film made by someone who's like a master of the art of filmmaking. Like it's beautifully shot, not even so much the like beauty of the shots, but it feels very controlled in terms of 
the choices that Lee Chang Dong is making in terms of like where the camera's going. On the other hand, I think there's a real problem with the editing because it just goes on forever. I mean, after watching this movie, I kind of messaged you being like, this film's gorgeous, but there's a limit to the number of sort of dusky cityscapes that we need to see. And there's there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Yeah. But even in terms of like the individual scenes, like I can, I was thinking about it while I was watching. I was like, I can understand why all of this is in here, but surely you could tighten the script. And that also goes back to like, what kind of movie is this, right? Because if you want it to be more of a thriller, then having it be tighter and more propulsive would be so helpful, right? If you just don't care about that, then like, what is this film? I just think it's really sort of stuck between different things, which again, obviously is like not a problem that a lot of other people had, but for me was really tough. And I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying about the dialogue and the monologue specifically feeling kind of forced. And I felt like some of those scenes were performed really well. Like the greenhouse scene that you were talking about, like when Stephen Young's character, Ben, is talking about he sets greenhouses on fire, which really seems like a metaphor for killing women, which we'll get into in a minute. Like that scene is performed incredibly well between those two actors and he just is really unnerving and odd in it. But that and a similar scene earlier in the movie where Hamy is miming eating a tangerine feel so much like the filmmakers being like, well, I want to convey a metaphorical point. So I'm going to just stick it in the movie through the mouth of the characters And it just felt like there were all of these different things that the movie was trying to do or trying to be, and it didn't decide what it was. Because you can go totally metaphorical and just be like, I don't care about realism at all. And that kind of works. But that's not quite what this movie was doing either. So it's like split between all these different modes in a way that, again, to me personally, just was really unsatisfying. So to go slightly more into spoilers, we will discuss the very end at the very end, but um, the kind of big middle of the story precipice is when Hamie goes missing. And it's initially unclear to what extent she is missing, but since we know what type of movie we're watching, we know that she's missing. <laughs> um, so there's this long section of the film, like the second half of the film, the protagonist is just kind of trying to figure out what happened and starts essentially stalking Ben and is going to places where they've hung out before and is parking his car outside his house and following Ben's car around and both trying to figure out what's happening also occasionally like having a couple of little confrontations with him but not angry confrontations it's all very sort of low-key and people like really fell in love with Stephen Yun in this. He's got a very famous yawn in this movie where he's just this sort of like disinterested yawn in the background of a social event with a bunch of other rich people. But there's just this great contrast between the main character who obviously like there's the class contrast, but there's also the fact that he really cares about something. Like even though it's intentionally not a remotely dynamic performance, we know that he really cares about finding this woman because he is basically his new full-time job is stalking some guy in order to try and figure out what happened to the girl. I have to say there's a point halfway through the film where he's also like, I'm in love with her. And it's like, you're what? (laughs) Because they kind of don't, 
kind of weaving into the sexism problem. I mean, obviously, like, we don't know what his internal thoughts and feelings are, which is kind of the point of the film. But at the same time, I was like, you're in love with her? Okay. But yeah, there is like a strong suspicion begins to build that Ben killed her or something else like really dark happened. But at the same time, it's possible that she just like went somewhere because she's introduced as this character who's kind of spontaneous and makes a lot of choices, potentially not good ones. And also, you know, she has loads of credit card debt. So they seed in the idea that she might have just like fled because she has credit card debt. So you're kind of left guessing. And um, the movie does have like a really big finale, which we will talk about later. But yeah, I think the second half is where it really becomes more of a thriller. But in terms of pacing... Like Morgan, I did not find this film particularly exciting to watch. And I think if it hadn't had really good and intense music, I would have really struggled to pay any sort of attention. Uh, The music is by Moog, who is a Korean soundtrack musician. Really prolific. Great. Love him. And it's this sort of like minimalist, unnerving, string bass, heavy, sort of vaguely jazzy soundtrack. And it sounds great. It's really, really intense. There's kind of a slow moving car chase at one point that works really well. But I mean, without that level of atmosphere, I was struggling a little bit. Well, there are a couple things. Number one, (laughs) this guy, it's like stalking this other man in the middle of the city in his like dirty farm truck. And I was like, I know you're not a practical man because you study creative writing, but I feel like it's quite obvious. I was watching that with the absolute assumption that Stephen Yun knows 100% oh, of the time that this guy is following 100%. him. Because the level to which he is following yes. him is very obvious. there's a shot at one point where he like pulls up next to him on the highway because like the lanes are moving at different paces, right? And there's like, <laughs> the music rises and it's like, <gasps> and then like he falls back and he's relieved. And I was like, dude, he knows you're following him because like this is completely absurd. So like the movie is definitely aware about that, but I just did feel again in terms of like the way the characters are behaving i was like are we meant to just think that this man is a full idiot like what is happening here in terms of what's going on with Hamie, i think we we need to say that right before she disappears there's this scene like right in the middle of the movie where she does this dance in front of the two men where she's talked about this dance earlier in the movie it was something that she saw i think in the kalahari desert on her trip to africa and It's like the great hunger dance. And she just fully just takes off her top in front of these two guys and does this dance. And the camera is on her for a couple minutes. And it's this like big emotional moment for her. We see that she's the great hunger that the dance refers to is like, like emotional sort of pain as opposed to like, you're hungry for food. Meant to be one of the big emotional scenes in in the movie and for her character, certainly, because she vanishes after this. I find this scene completely appalling and it alienated me totally from the movie the first time I saw it. And after that point, I was really kind of done with it. And I felt the same way this time. And again, when I was doing my like tiny little anecdotal crowdsourcing, talking to people like this had really put people off of it, it seemed like. And it's one of those moments where like it was interesting when all the Me Too stuff was first happening and actresses were talking about not so much like major horrific episodes of sexual assault they had experienced, but more minor things in terms of directors asking them to be topless or wear really revealing clothes in scenes where like it just wasn't necessary at all. And learning over the course of their career, like when they could push back on that or boundaries that they'd set for themselves. 
And this was a case where it was just so clear to me that that scene does not need her to be topless. There is no reason. As someone where it's like their first film role. It adds nothing to the story. It just made me feel really gross. I have obviously have no idea like how she felt about it. Maybe she was totally fine, but that's not actually really the point. I mean, I certainly hope that she had a good experience making the movie, but um, it felt so reflective of the way the movie was thinking about and treating that character, which was as an object, which is what she becomes in the second half because she's gone. And then she completely is the vehicle for these men to have this sort of weird, passive aggressive, like feuding thing going on. But, like, she's vanished, Yeah, I mean, it's clear that a seed like this is so subjective, right? Because, I mean, a scene where someone dances around with their tops off is, like, (laughs) it could be literally anything. And it's obviously not intrinsically sexist. (laughs) But in the particular context of this character in this film, it's a very specific characterization choice that I think you have to do a lot of mental work for it to make sense, right? Because... The film is already introduced to someone who's very much a free spirit and she potentially makes like choices that are dangerous. So like it does kind of make sense that she'd go to this guy's house. Kind of seems like she's enjoying playing them off against each other to a certain extent. And then she's like comfortable taking off her top and dancing for them. And the film also kind of makes it clear that she doesn't really have a social circle. Like she doesn't seem to have any female friends. Like she has female coworkers at this dancing type job she has. But the only social contacts that we're aware of are these two guys. And she like does this dance, which I think the film is kind of portraying as self-expression, but because of the context feels more like she's dancing for them. And if she's not dancing for them, then she's someone who doesn't like have an issue being in this sort of like sexual context and feeling like completely safe or not having the survival instincts to feel unsafe in that position. They have to like pick her up and put her in the couch to sleep. So you have to kind of like think through that and be like, what's the decision making process that's going on in her head? And then I read this very in-depth interview with the director where he talks about this scene in a way that I'm sure some people were like, this analysis is bang on. And to me, I was like, this is a very over-intellectualized way of discussing a scene where it's just like a hot girl taking her top off for three minutes. (laughs) So this quote from Lee Chang-dong, he says, the two young men in the film, Jong-soo and Ben, are kind of the two sides of young people who live in the modern world today. Jong-soo is very working class and struggling, while Ben, of course is a successful, almost psychopathic character. Between these two extremes is Hamey. She also struggles through her life. She dances on the streets, she lives with credit card debt, but she's the only character in the film who persistently pursues the meaning of life. The moment she disappears, I wanted the audience to sort of feel her absence and ask themselves what she represents and has been searching for. Her presence in this film is very important, even when she's not there. The dancing in this scene really signifies her entire presence in the film. And then he goes on to say, when she's dancing the Great Hunger Dance searching for the meaning of life and really seeking true freedom. You see her doing that dance surrounded by both the lies and the nature we live in. 
The scene being set during sunset, you see light and darkness coexisting, you see the moon in the sky and you also see the grass swing in the wind, you see the livestock, the farm, and of course the Korean national flag which symbolises politics. You see all those elements that represent aspects of our lives, even the Miles Davis tune. I thought that through this scene I could portray and combine all of these elements together in the most cinematic way possible so the audience can really feel the potential of cinema as a medium and the unique aesthetics of cinema. Yeah. (laughs) And that is not what I got from that scene personally. I did not either. And I would just like to add that in in our top 10 of 2021 episode, I was talking at length about how one of my favorite movies is just a film where there's just a naked woman all the way through. So this is not prudishness. I just think that the viewpoint of this character was dubious to say the least. I mean, our 2020 episode, we both best 2020 episode we both had hustlers so like again (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think in the first part of that quote he maybe gives away without meaning to the problem right which is that like the two male characters are the two sides of young people and then like she's in the middle and then you've got the manic pixie dream girl the third right exactly (laughs) and i mean i do think the class stuff in the movie as I was saying earlier that some of it is really interesting. And I also definitely think that some of the class stuff is just like the nuances of that are inaccessible to me as an American viewer who like doesn't know that much about what's going on in South Korea. Like I have, I mean, a lot of those kind of dinner party scenes and stuff just felt really well observed. Like all of that kind of class interplay did really work for me. And I remember feeling very strongly at the time that like there was something going on in the movie that I was not really getting because I didn't know very much about South Korea. And I've seen more films from there now. And so I think I have a sort of better grasp on the country and the culture. And I'm like still at like a very rudimentary level. So I think I kind of got the movie a little bit better now, but I still think that there are enough sort of like subtleties in terms of the way people are are interacting with each other. And I think especially actually, and as we were saying on like those peripheral scenes, as opposed to between all the main characters, that I can definitely appreciate, but there's stuff I'm just not going to pick up on, which is fine. Like, that's going to happen when you're watching a film from another country. But that doesn't mean that there isn't this central problem, which is like, okay, so you've spent all this time being like, so how can these two men represent these different things and clearly have this sort of antipathy for each other? But it's all being channeled through this woman who is clearly just there again to be like a vessel for that antagonism through sex. Yeah. And the way he's phrasing this in this interview is like, oh, it's this kind of subversion and dissection of the missing women trope. And I'm like, it's not, it's not like, this is definitely a far more thoughtful and intellectual movie than the vast majority of missing women films. But I would not say it's subverting anything at all. I would say this is a completely standard missing women trope situation right it's it's like the Truffaut quote about how there can't be an anti-war movie right because they all just ultimately depict the thing that they're trying to critique i'm not sure i agree with him about that but that's a classic line and in this case it's like yeah you've just done the thing (laughs) like it's it's the same of course some of the best missing women movies are movies where the woman comes back like gone girl and tell no one the french film which i love and i mean spoiler but she doesn't come back in this. She's just gone, right? So you just get this silence. And the idea that like, well, she's so powerful and important in the movie when she's not there. I just don't really buy that as an explanation. 
in general, I think that that's pretty facile. Yeah. And it's certainly in this case, you know. And the actress does a really good job, especially considering the fact this is her first film role. Like, clearly he did see something really impressive in her, like, at that audition, because her performance is, like, very naturalistic and she exists really well on screen with the other two leads. And, like, there's not really any sense of imbalance in terms of their behaviour and their interactions and their chemistry. It's more just, like, the writing and concept of that character is weaker. Yeah, I mean, I think she does a pretty... It's um, John Junso is the actress's name. And I think she does an actually, like, remarkable job, given that the character she's playing is just... Again, like, there's no psychological explanation for most of her behavior. And, like, she still manages to feel on a moment-by-moment level like a human, which I think is really impressive and i think back to what you were saying about like the way she behaves in that dancing scene like she's really feels safe and like she's not really worried about basically sexual violence there's something particularly sort of like about that given that the movie kind of becomes about the question of whether or not violence has happened to this woman right and you just get the sense the people who made the film like had not really thought enough about how women are forced to think about these things all the time. Yeah, because to me, a more interesting way to sort of tweak that, and I'm not going to attempt to say that I'm a better storyteller than Lee Chang Dong, obviously, but like in terms of that very specific interaction, the way that I think it would work better is if the movie is slightly more explicit in the idea of characterizing this woman as someone who is like vulnerable to that sort of abuse because like psychopaths know how to target someone who makes a good target right and that isn't really something this film seems to be aware of it's more just like she's like got this kind of confidence and this vulnerability and like yeah she's doing some stuff that like puts her in danger like i said but it's not particularly unusual but then there's no, yeah, there's none of this sense of sort of like the potential for gender-based violence, like Morgan said. It's more just like that just happens later. And maybe we can argue that like that's partly because the whole film is told from jung Su's perspective, but... I don't buy that. You know. You, you mentioned some, that <laughs> yeah. in regards to this character when we were texting about it and I was like, no, no, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so, in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, I think we should talk about this question of like what actually happened to her because it is the animating question of the second half of the movie. Because to me, like I walked out of this movie, you know, a few years ago with my friend and we were both like, he definitely killed her. Like he 100% murdered this woman. And I know that people for whom the film really worked better, I think at least for a lot of them, that question was a lot more ambiguous and that thinking about that was part of what was interesting to them about the movie. But to me... The film, like, put too many check marks in the column of, like, yeah, he murdered her, and not enough in the column of, like, maybe she just did something else, right? To me, the thing that really persuades me that he murdered her is um, this cat who, like, at first, when the main character is, like, going to, like, cat sit, he never meets this cat. So there's this whole kind of mystery over whether this cat, like, even fucking exists. But then after Hamie's gone missing, he goes to Ben's house just like while he's stalking him, but like bumps into him and they're going to eat dinner together. And Ben mentions that he's like got a cat now. And the protagonist figures out, oh, this is actually Hamie's cat. It answers to the same name, which is Boiler. And like Timmy, I'm like, okay, Ben would only take this cat 
for like bad reasons. He is not someone who loves to nurture animals. So he's only going to take this cat as like a murder trophy or in order to psychologically torment the protagonist, right? Those are the only two reasons that make sense to me in terms of the way this character is like portrayed. Because he's not going to be like, oh, I'd love to go to more effort to look after a stray cat. Like that's not him. Yeah. I mean, I think the implication in the movie actually is that either he's murdered her or she has committed suicide because there are moments where she expresses kind of this like, what's the point? sort of feeling and she hasn't taken her suitcase and she does have the credit card debt which could mean that she's gone into hiding or that she's just in this state of like my life is too overwhelming to cope right again like so she has taken her her suitcase she hasn't gone anywhere he has this like creepy drawer of like trophies from all of his previous girlfriends whatever like just little bits of jewelry and stuff including her watch later in the movie and then there's the cat And he's just presented as such an unbelievable creep from minute one. They met in the airport hotel in Kenya and um, she's really tired when they get back and she cries over some sort of trivial thing or something. I don't remember the deal. And um, the main character is like really sympathetic and is like, oh no, like, you know, what's wrong? And Stephen Yeun's just watching and is like, watching people cry is so fascinating. I've never shed a tear in my life. And you're like, what the fuck? That is not normal <laughs> conversation. Like, you would run away from that. The only way to read that is he's like extremely explicitly texting the waters. And because jung response isn't immediately to be like, what the fuck? He's like, aha, I've gotten in here too. I found two people yeah. to fuck with. <laughs> and I think other parts of the movie, the dialogue from that character, Ben, is like much more subtle and interesting. But there are these moments where it's just like, it's kind of too much, I think. And the greenhouse monologue, where again, like, it feels pretty clear to me that he's talking about murdering women, in a way is kind of mesmerizing as a scene. But in another way, it's so sort of self-consciously literary that, like, it's obviously a metaphor. Yeah, that was the point where I was like, oh. <laughs> I also, for, like, the final third, I was really gearing up for jong to, like, set fire to a thing and then get arrested or for Ben to set fire to a thing and then have it be pinned on jong because jong has been running around his neighborhood checking <laughs> up on all the little greenhouses personally. I'm like, he's going to get framed for arson. And it's like, that's no. not this type of film. <laughs> Too much plot. So the thing it reminded me of, honestly, which is a bizarre comparison to make, but it is the thing I was thinking about, was the end of Inception. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That is a bizarre comparison. Well, Christopher Nolan like, shows the top spitting which is like a sign that was this all in Leonardo DiCaprio's head. But the movie has not supported that thesis at all. There's too much proof that it was happening in real life and not enough on the other side, right? Like, and it's clearly just a sort of like, ooh, but look, I'm clever. But maybe it was the other thing. And this, to me, felt similar in a way where like, the film wants to be really ambiguous. And the end, which I think we can talk about now, I think is trading in that too so like basically what happens again spoilers if you don't want to know at the very end of the movie is that jong su lures ben out into this like deserted part of the country near where he lives and stabs him repeatedly and murders him and then torches his fancy porsche with him inside of it it's a really thrilling ending like it's shot in one or maybe two takes and is really like it's, it's amazing But I think part of what that ending wants you to feel is like, did he just murder a guy who didn't do anything? But I wasn't feeling that way at all. I was just like, no, this dude kills women. So like, 
whatever, right? And I just think the movie, again, for me, is kind of trying to accomplish something in terms of what it's doing, like, morally, that it never did when I was watching. Yep. (laughs) Although I did enjoy the murder. Like, it's a very fun murder scene. Yeah. It's shot great. The problem with the movie is not, like, lack of technical skill. Did we name check the cinematographer? No. It's Hong Kyung-kyo who also worked on Parasite, The Wailing, and Snowpiercer. He's, like, a big, very impressive cinematographer. I mean, as I said, looks amazing. And not in, like, a flashy way, like, aside from the shots of the Twilight that you were complaining about. Most of the shots aren't too noticeable, but they're all doing something. Like, it's it's an incredibly well-shot movie. I just think that it's way too long. Like, it's just incredibly self-indulgently long. Um, Do we have any other things we want to touch on? Well, in addition to getting absolute rave reviews at the time, this movie was also voted the best Korean film of all time by an international critics poll at koreanscreen.com. So just to reiterate that if you're listening to this podcast and thinking, wow, this movie sounds like it sucks, we're very much the minority opinion and maybe you should try watching it yourself. We may have been underwhelmed and slightly bored, but clearly most people found this film very exciting and by people i do mean critics i don't know what the general public opinion of this was um who can say (laughs) yeah i mean this was obviously requested by a listener again thank you to thomas i apologize for our negative i hope you i hope we've not put you off after you've paid for this rather rather ambivalent to negative episode on a beloved film (laughs) but one of the things i found myself and like we have a very sophisticated listenership And I am a film critic, so, like, I don't usually sit around being like, ugh, film critics. But this was one of those times where I did think, like, I wonder what, like, normal people would think of this movie who are not film critics. Because it just seemed like the sort of thing that, like, critics were going wild for. And I was like, who's gonna watch this? And I I don't know. Like, maybe it was a, you know, hit on streaming. Like, who could say? I mean, your favorite film of last year is Drive My Car. And you're like, everyone should watch this. So I mean, it's made a million dollars the box office in the United States. One million. And there's a pandemic. That movie is doing really well, which is amazing and so encouraging to me. I think they're a really interesting kind of pair to consider because of the Murakami comparison, obviously, which I think that um, Hamaguchi did a really good job of sort of changing in that film so that it feels less like it has the problems that Murakami's stuff often has. And in terms of like, that movie was obviously not made with any kind of like pandering to audiences in mind, but it is a movie that even though it's three hours long and is an art film, I actually don't think it's hard to watch at all. And audiences are finding it, which is really exciting. And I think the Oscar nominations will only mean that's happening more. And that makes me really, like, excited about movies. Whereas this feels, again, like, there are these thriller elements that are, like, kind of trying to make it accessible in a way. I'm not saying that was, like, calculated, but it's kind of the effect. But I just don't find it... I don't I don't find it accessible. I'm sure it was popular in Korea, but, um, yeah. I think we should also just mention that this was kind of, like, kicked off Steven Yeun's film career. Not that it was the first thing that he'd done, but it really elevated him, I think, in terms of, like, critical appraisal. He had a side role in Sorry to Bother You that year, and, like, a side role in Octia the year before. And then after this was, like, Minari. And then he's got, like, Nope coming up. So he's doing great. I do remember, as someone who, like, didn't watch this film at the time, there was a lot of, kind of, press around Stephen Young, because it was, like, after he'd 
his character being killed off in The Walking Dead. And kind of over the past five years, there's been like so much more conversation in pop culture press about Asian and, Amer- and Asian American actors getting more of their due in American pop culture. And a lot of the chat around his role in this movie was basically like, I can't believe he had to go to Korea <laughs> to like get a role of this level. And there's like all these Steven Yun fans who were just like infuriated because he kept getting shafted by what sounded like a fairly dull and repetitive role in The Walking Dead. But um, he definitely gave some really interesting interviews. Like he is clearly like a very charming and interesting guy. Like there was an interview on NPR where he kind of talks about the challenge of playing a Korean character as a Korean American because like he's fluent in Korean obviously but you know he wasn't like a modern colloquial Korean speaker because like he'd learned from his parents who had like left the country decades ago and there's this really good quote where he says you know to really understand the encoding of the body of being a native currently living there Korean person for me as an immigrant I know of Korea in kind of maybe images or eras My parents taught me Korea from the 80s and 90s. That's their understanding of Korea and that's how I grew up. But Korea's changed and evolved just like any other nation and you're not updated on colloquialisms and vernacular and other people's way of just being with each other. So I really thought that I had to do a lot of work for that. And then the director said, let's not mess with your Americana. So that's kind of embedded into your body. So the character is not Korean American. Like he is emphatically meant to be a Korean character, but it's clearly he's meant to be like really well-traveled it's kind of like playing into his role as this sort of man about town figure. And he's explicitly compared to Gatsby. Yeah. One of the things I think is really interesting in the movie is are these are repeated comparisons between Korea and America. And there's this conversation at one of the party scenes you were mentioning where the party guests are talking about China and they're talking about how China is so much like America, even though the Chinese don't like to think that it is, I think is, you know, based on things that I've read, it's probably true, but they're kind of saying, but we're not like that. And I think one of the things the movie's kind of trying to say is like, well, like, actually, I think you maybe are. Like, there's footage of Trump in this movie, which I completely forgotten, and which was just like, oh my god. So (laughs) I think, like, that is, again, like, embodied in him in a really interesting way that's both subtextual in the film and like extra textual because of who he is, which I think is really interesting. He did a Q&A after my screening and I don't remember the details, but I just remember thinking that he seemed really smart and interesting, which is reflected in the choices he's made for his career. Like, as you say, he clearly wasn't getting the opportunities that he wanted and he went and did this film and has been making clearly very smart and like deliberate choices with the film's that he's doing and he's working with really exciting people and doing great stuff. So I think that's really exciting because he's obviously mega talented. I think he probably got very close to an Oscar nomination for this, which is pretty wild. And people fucking love him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I'm really looking forward to him and Nope along with everybody else. So that should be, should be good. And I really do. Great trailer. Yeah. I I really do want to see Lee Chang Dong's other movies. Poetry is meant to be like incredible. So despite my lack of enthusiasm for this one, Gotta check that stuff out. So, yeah, thanks again to Thomas, despite despite our, again, cool review of this one. It was really interesting to talk about. And I'm kind of glad to have my crabby opinion out there. Yeah, if you've got any pals who don't like this film, just forward our podcast to you. Yeah. Okay, so next week we have 
a listener request which I was not expecting and indeed had forgotten this film even existed but we have had a request from someone to review the 2013 Michael Bay action comedy film Pain and Gain which stars three large men yes this is a birthday gift for someone this episode so we have discussion topics that have been provided I am thrilled to do some homework I believe the only Michael Bay film I have ever seen is The Island starring Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. So I will be learning things. You've not even seen Pearl Harbor? (laughs) Absolutely not, no. But we can talk more about that next week. If you would like to sponsor an episode like this one or that one and risk us saying negative things about a movie that you presumably love or ask us to do a movie that you know we're going to hate, which we have done in the past, you can do that at our Patreon. I mean, we do enjoy liking movies. We like to enjoy them. Yes. I think we talk about more movies that we like than than otherwise. Oh, but, yeah. You know, sometimes. Hence the title of our podcast. Yes. <laughs> but that is it. Patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me at The Daily Dot, where I recently reviewed the Netflix Anna Delvey show and the amazing Korean zombie show All of Us Are Dead. And you can also find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me at Bustle, where I recently wrote about uh, the Hulu show Pam and Tommy and about JLo's new rom-com Marry Me and on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.